invite you to take a Bible and turn to the book of Titus. Titus, what was that? Always look, make sure nobody fell out of the balcony. All right, Titus chapter 1, page 998 in these Bibles from the pews. As was mentioned in the prayer, this is a Veterans Day weekend. And what's really special, I guess you could say, about this one is today, as of 37 minutes ago, was the 100th anniversary. On 11 a.m. on November the 11th, 1918, that's when the agreement was signed ending World War I. So in this case, it, it really is the 100th anniversary of which we're grateful for veterans, veterans' families, and, and others. My dad uh, served in the Army in uh, Tokyo at the end of World War II, and uh, so was not in combat, and yet I, he and his father before him, I still have my grandfather's uniform in a footlocker um, from uh, many, many years ago of when he served in the military. Uh, Titus chapter 1, uh, why Titus? Usually people think at this time of year you're going to preach on Thanksgiving and then Christmas. Um, this is a passage or a very short letter Paul wrote to Titus about how to do church. And we're going to elect officers in just a few weeks. Uh, we'll have a congregational meeting for that. And I wanted to look again at what's required of church leaders, but also some simple instructions for a local church. So we come to Titus. This was the Apostle Paul writing a letter to this man, Titus, I'll tell you about in a moment. I'd like to read verses 1 through 9. Hear God's word. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, is, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Let's pray together. Our Father, you tell us your word is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. We ask now that it would not return to you void, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Who wrote this letter? It tells us at the very beginning, Paul. At the time the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to his co-worker Titus, he was 60 years old. I made the comment at the first service that we're often told in America, at least, that today's 40 
or uh, is, is yesterday's 30, that 50 is the new 40, and I guess 30 is the new 20, I'm not sure. After the first service, I had a 90-year-old woman ask me, what is the new 90? <laughs> and I had made the comment at the first service that if Paul was 60, that would have been in his day at least 70 given medical and diet and so forth and what he went through health-wise. And someone challenged me and said, no, he would have been 90. That would have been 90 in his today if you were 60 at his age. I don't know. But I do know that he had not propped his feet up to do nothing at this stage of his life. He is still in ministry and we see a focus of his ministry in mentoring younger leaders. So he's bringing that wisdom to bear that he has from years of ministry experience as an itinerant evangelist, as a church planter, as a servant of God, as the, as the 13th apostle. And who was Titus then? Who, to whom is he writing? We don't know a whole lot about this man Titus, but we know from the New Testament that when they met, apparently he was a pagan, he was an unbeliever, he had not yet become a Christian. And so it was through Paul's ministry, personal ministry to him, that he had come to faith in Christ. So Paul refers to him as my true child in the faith. We do know from the, the New Testament that Titus traveled with Paul to the city of Corinth. He watched Paul minister in a in a divided situation. He watched him handle problems. He watched him give instruction and to, to, to make peace with, with people, even within the church. He went with Paul to the city of Jerusalem for the Jerusalem Council when the early church had to hammer out some pretty major doctrinal issues. So Titus was looking over his shoulder. Paul was his mentor. Now, if you study the history of, at least in America of graduate education, then this is more in line with what our early history was. In colonial America, if, if a man felt called to be a pastor, rather than going off immediately to school to work on a degree, he would come under the tutelage of a pastor and typically would live with that pastor and his family. And he would learn through observation. And he would learn through conversation. And he would be involved in that local ministry of that pastor. And that's how he received training. So today we have law schools, medical schools, and seminaries, and many, many others to prepare men and women to pass a, a, an exam or exams to certify them in a certain area. But the idea of the school originally was to prepare a person for that exam. So if you were self-taught, if you had been mentored by someone else and could pass the exam, theoretically, well, in reality for a long time, but theoretically, you were then credentialed to carry out a profession. Not that ministry is a profession, but that's, what, that's how you were trained. And then later it became what it is today, where seminary degree required and examinations theologically and so forth, which is not a bad thing. I'm just saying that when we come in the New Testament, Titus, whom, who I'm going to describe the ministry he was left with, had received his, his on-the-job training under the shadow of the Apostle Paul. 
And so Paul takes him to this island of Crete, and he leaves him there for a specific purpose. Now, Crete, you say, oh, island ministry. Uh, who, who wants to plant a church in Hawaii or the Bahamas or somewhere? You would think that this, uh, this must be a pretty easy assignment. No, not at all. Crete in no way was a vacation spot. It's a large island. Some of you have been there. It's 156 miles long. In some places, it's as wide as 35 miles. So it's, it's, it's big. It's very large. And it was not the latest and greatest vacation spot in the first century. In fact, its, its glory days had been hundreds of years before this. By the time we get to this, it had digressed to where basically the population was the remnant of mercenary uh, soldiers because it had been a Roman soldier training camp and shady business people. Uh, those were the occupants of the island. Uh, when you talk about ministry and missions, it was hard ground. It was a difficult field. Men, you would not have wanted your daughter to marry a person from Crete. If you were doing business, you would have been hesitant to do business with a person from Crete. Later in this letter, the Apostle Paul quotes one of their own poets who refers to them as liars, evil beasts, and gluttons. And Paul says that testimony is true. Have at it, Titus. So he leaves Titus there on this island, on this tough mission field. Now, the bad news was it was going to be very hard. It's a hard place to do ministry, not receptive. No one was greeting you with open arms. The good news is wherever there's darkness, there's a desperate need for the gospel of grace. So it was ripe and needy rather than being callous toward the gospel. Well, why did he leave him there? He gave him one specific instruction. What comes after this is basically spelling out what he says in verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So there was a Christian presence on the island, and we gather it was in a variety of cities and towns on Crete, but there was disarray. We will find out later in the book that there was false teaching. There were people saying what they were teaching was true, but they, it was not. They were teaching lies. There was heresy on the island. Uh, all, all these kinds of things were happening, and he says, Titus, I want you to go in there and bring order. I want you to take the remnant of what is left and bring order and appoint elders in every town. So he'd left him there for that purpose. But I want to begin, and what I want to do today is not talk so much about Titus, and we'll get to that, Lord willing, next week, but to talk about the Apostle Paul in this opening paragraph when he introduces himself. Typically today, when we, when we write a letter, we just say, dear so-and-so. Oh, young people, there was a time in America we wrote on paper and actually had envelopes and stamps, but you could probably see that in a museum somewhere, but you would just, you would not spend a lot of time at the beginning telling about yourself unless it was a complete stranger. Paul's writing to his friends. Titus knows who he is. This letter is going to be read, obviously, to other people as they did in New Testament times. 
But in those days, you would begin uh, identifying yourself as the author, and you would then uh, identify who you were. And he does so, and he, right off the bat, calls himself a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Think how he could have identified. We're into self-identity today. I mean, it's just every. It's it's uh, it's the fruition of 300 years of thought and philosophy going back to the Enlightenment. The self-identification: I am what I decide. No one else is going to tell me what I am, whether it's gender, whether it's uh, race. And I read last week of a person who was in their 60s who said they felt like they're in their 40s. So from here on out, they're going to be in their 40s. So they self-identified as a 40-year-old. And I'm not trying to sound sarcastic, but we, this is where we are. We're in the self-identification. We'll determine, I'll determine who I am. Well, Paul saw it differently, and he said, I'm an, a servant of God. I'm an apostle. Think what he could have said. He could have said, I, received, I, I am a brilliant scholar. I received the best education of my day. Uh, I was a Jewish leader. I was a Pharisee. In other words, I was uh, like a member of the Supreme Court of my day and the Jewish religion. He could have said, I am a, a missionary that's been given gifts, even including the gift of miracles. He could have said, I am the human person that God has chosen to author a, a substantial part of, the, of his word. Uh, he could have used all those things, but what does he say? I am a servant. I am a servant of God, and I am an apostle. There's a sense in which all of us who belong to Christ, are slaves of Christ. That's a common phrase in the Bible. Romans 6, 22 says to be a Christian is to be a bondservant. We've been freed from sin and enslaved to God. 1 Corinthians 6 says we have been bought with a price, and that's the price of his, his son. And because we no longer belong to ourselves, we should, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5, no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. So regardless, you may hear this, and if, if you're not a follower of Christ, you may say, well, who, who's interested in being a servant? Someone else. Well, everyone serves somebody or something, whether an addiction or a habit or an interest or a hobby or a sin or another person or an affection. Um, but we should see ourselves as slaves to God, as, as Paul did. And then he mentions he's an apostle. Now, he was one who occupied the office of apostle. It's not unusual today to be driving on the highway and see, hey, there's a new church meeting out here on this highway, and it's pastored by apostle so-and-so and her husband. You know, I mean, you'll see these signs, and, and uh, I think I know what they mean by that. The word apostle means one who is sent, but the office of apostle ended with the New Testament. There were only 13. Okay, there were the 12 disciples, and Judas was replaced with Matthias, and then Paul was added, as he said, the last of those. So those that had the office of apostle were, was a limited number. But it was one who was sent, and sent to take the message of someone else. If you received a notice today from some high-ranking government official, a summons, I, if you're like me, I assume I would look at it. I would not pay attention to who had just delivered it. If it was a person with a, a UPS person or FedEx, I don't think I'd say, you know, you're really not dressed very nice today. I don't think I want your message. I don't like your attitude. I don't like your looks. I don't like, you know, the way you talk. I don't like your accent. Here, you take this message back. 
No, the emphasis is on the message and who it came from. And an apostle, and us today, those who are sent, we take the message, we don't write the message, we don't create the message, we just deliver the message. And often we're too preoccupied with how am I going to appear? How am I going to come across? Will this person like me? Now, I don't think we should work at being offensive. The gospel is offensive. We don't need to be offensive. It's offensive enough. So we should seek to build bridges rather than burn them. But he saw himself as an apostle. We see also in verses 1 and 2, Paul was committed to God's mission. He says, For the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness in the hope of eternal life. Now, God's mission for Paul included, first of all, evangelism. He was a servant for the faith of those chosen by God. He recognized our responsibility to help bring God's elect, those chosen of God, to saving faith in Christ. And about a year after he wrote this to Titus, he writes to Timothy a similar letter, and he says, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal life. Now Paul was called as a divine bondservant and an apostle to proclaim the message of the gospel in order that the elect may be brought by the Holy Spirit to faith. Now you say, I knew it. This is in a Presbyterian church for the first time. The pastor's already gone off on election and predestination. Well, I'm just trying to say what's here in this, this passage. And Scripture speaks often of the doctrine of election. Matthew 22, Christ said, Many are invited, but few are chosen. Luke 18 says, And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? We see also, like in Ephesians 1, for he chose us in him before the found or creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now, I've, I've been a Christian since I was young, and I've been in a lot of discussions with people through the years about the doctrine of election. I remember a, a friend of mine from Texas, a fellow from the Woody Woodward, what's his name, from the University of Texas. We were on a a Campus Crusade for Christ beach project, and we were going to talk to people on the beach one day about, about Christ. And I said to him as we were walking out there, Woody, do you believe in election? He said, yeah, I believe in election. Uh, the Holy Spirit voted for me, the Son voted for me, the Father voted for me, and the devil voted against me. I won three to one, you know. So I, that wasn't exactly what it meant. Another view, and I, this, this is maybe where, what you've been taught, is that God looked down a tube of time, and he saw something in you or me or someone else. He saw us choose Christ, and based on what he saw before the time of creation, as it says in Ephesians, then he chose us. But that is not what this is saying, okay? Let me give you my understanding. I'm going to give you the theological reformed definition or description of election as to what it means. And you can choose how to respond to it. But it says this, the doctrine of election declares that God, before the foundation of the world, chose certain individuals from among the fallen members of Adam's race to be the objects of his undeserved favor. These and these only he purposed to save. 
God could have chosen to save all people, or he could have chosen to save none, but he did neither. Instead, he chose to save some and to exclude others. His eternal choice of particular sinners for salvation was not based upon any foreseen act or response on the part of those selected, but was based solely on his own good pleasure and sovereign will. Thus, are y'all still with me? Last sentence. Thus, election was not determined by or conditioned upon anything that men would do, but resulted entirely from God's self-determined purpose. So what that is saying, in a, to put it in a nutshell, God's election was not based on anything he foresaw in us. It wasn't based on seeing that Joe or Sally or Susan will choose to follow Christ in 2018. Therefore, based on what I see, I will choose her. That's what's meant by unconditioned. We, we did not meet any conditions, but God freely chose. And you may say, well, I don't understand. This is confusing. Well, one theologian from yesteryear used this illustration to talk about the tension between God's control or sovereignty and our responsibility. How can God be in control and we be responsible and accountable at the same time? He put it this way. Imagine a rope, a rope about that thick. And it goes up to the ceiling. And there's a, we drill a hole in the ceiling. And the rope goes up through the roof over a pulley and then back through another hole on that side. So if you think of that center beam, then it comes all the way back down. And I'm holding both ends. Now we can't see what's above the roof because it goes up through the hole. So this side of the rope, we could say, is God's sovereignty. With such verses as I read, God doing the choosing or Paul referring to God's chosen or elect. Over here is our responsibility to believe, to follow, to choose. And we live with this tension, that there's tension from both, both ends of the rope. If for one reason or another, either like, I can't, wait, this, this is driving me crazy. How can it be both? I'm going to release this one of God's response, of God's sovereignty, and it's got to be all us. Well, at that point, the rope falls. Or if I say, no, it's all God. God will choose whom he will. We don't need to be sending kids or anybody to cast a Hogar. We don't need to be supporting missions. If God's got his elect, he'll redeem them in his time. We don't need to worry about it. Then we release human responsibility, and then it falls outward. So as a recent inquirers class and we were discussing, you've got to live with the tension. There's a tension there. That are, that's, that's a struggle for us. But when we look at the scriptures, that's what we see taught. I mean, it's there. So you, you just have to, you would have to chop out a number of chapters uh, of the Bible. And so why do we have this in the Bible? It is not to get into theological debates. It's not for late night discussions at the coffee shop or to split hairs. It's never used, the doctrine of election is never used in the Bible toward that end. Here's how it's used. The verse that's probably most often quoted by people for their friends when they're going through suffering is Romans 8.28. Now, most of you have it memorized in a variety of versions, but it all means the same thing. 
But we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I memorized it from the New American Standard, so if you read it in the ESV, it's probably a little different. But the meaning's the same. We know that verse. We often, Romans 8, 28, but we often don't pay attention to what's around it. And that is, what, here's what's said. For those whom he foreknew, this is the next verse, 8.29, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, here's my point. The context, the context of Romans 8 and Romans 9, which are the watershed chapters in the New Testament on this subject, the context was suffering. The Roman Christians were being persecuted. They were going through hard times. And that was the context for the Apostle Paul to say, you need to be reminded of these truths. It was not just a theological debate. Here's why. When you and I go through hard times, the questions that come to mind are, does God care? Is God there? Does God really love me? Does God oppose me? And then when you're asking those questions, you don't want a real, you don't want a, a cliche. I don't think you do. You want to know, what is my relationship to God? How does he view me? And that's when we have this teaching all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined, and so forth. In other words, if God has done all of this for your redemption, you really think he doesn't love you? You really think he doesn't care for you? You really don't think he's, he knows what's going on with you now with those problems? That's the first reason for this teaching. The second is it gives hope in ministry. Some say, well, if you believe in that, then you won't do evangelism. You won't share your faith. You won't do missions. But that's just not true. It's not true only in theory. It's not true in practice. When you look at how aggressively those that believe in Reformed theology, which is what I'm talking about right now, have been about missions and church planting. And here's why it gives hope and optimism. When I was a campus minister years ago at Ole Miss... University of Arkansas and at Mercer, if I had thought, for example, I went to the University of Arkansas, which at that time was only about 15,000 students. All these schools have gotten much larger now, or either they've padded their numbers, I'm not sure, but they're, they seem to be a lot larger than, than then. I knew two students, I had two students' names, and if I thought I'm going to walk on that campus and meet complete strangers and through conversation with me, and if they come to a Bible study that I'm leading, that maybe in 20 minutes, that their whole worldview that has been developed for 18 to 22 years is going to be turned upside down based on my powers of persuasion and my ability to debate them, does that give much optimism? No. I would apply for a job at Hobby Lobby tomorrow. So it gives optimism. That God is at work, as Paul is saying, that God has his chosen in all places. People of every tribe, nation, kindred, and tongue will be there on the last day. And all we got to do is show up. 
with the gospel. And it's God who changes hearts. If I also didn't believe that, think what pressure it would put on me or you. Oh, I've got to change this person. I've got to have all the answers to all the questions. I've got to be able to convince this person that someone they can't see is really here. So it gives hope in ministry. I find this had just the opposite effect of what those that say, well, if you believe this, you won't, uh, you'll be passive. You'll, you'll say, well, God will save whom he'll... I find it has just the opposite effect. Okay, he also says, uh, for just a couple more minutes, he says that he's about the edification of believers for their knowledge of the truth which accords to godliness uh, and encouragement. But I want to jump ahead and look at the end. The latter part of verse 3, he says about he's committed to God's message and the means to deliver it. He says, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So the message is God's word and the method was preaching. Now some people immediately think this, the public worship assembly and the preaching of the Bible. But when we look at the New Testament, that's one form of preaching, but also in the book of Acts, when it said that the persecution began, the Christians in Jerusalem were scattered and went about preaching the gospel. It's that anytime you present the gospel to another person in a form, that's a form of proclamation. That's a form of preaching. This also is preaching. So don't just think crowd, lectern, pulpit, that. That's part of it. But it's also whenever we proclaim to a friend or two or someone we've met, this is how a person can be right with God. That's God's avenue. Why? He's chosen that as a means to get his message out. Nobody knows. You'd think there'd be a better way than what Philip Brooks said was truth through personality. At the first service I mentioned, for, for, for those that are young and plan to preach, don't mimic other people. We all have our heroes. Mine, mine are all dead, but I mean, mine lived a long time ago. I couldn't mimic them if I, I, I wanted to. But here was how, why I would say that, and this is why the plagiarism issue has become, um, or at least a few years ago, was a, was a bigger deal in a number of pastors and ministers were fired from their positions for plagiarizing sermons. God is going to speak through us. Don't try to be somebody else, even as you witness to another person. Just be yourself. God has given you, he's given you his truth through your personality, and it's applied in a variety of ways. And some of us are academic, and some of us are not academic at all, but you're very approachable, and some are introverts, and some are extroverts, and it could be a variety of things. The message doesn't change, but God chooses to use through us. So the reason I would tell young preachers, don't model yourself after another person because you will limit how God will use you. We need to hear from you. Last of all, we see the fine affection between Paul and Titus in verse 4. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. 
God does not call us to serve him alone. Sometimes we go through seasons of being solitary or in a place where we're serving him alone, but we need supportive fellowship. We need camaraderie with others. You need it. I need it. If you try to walk with Christ without supportive fellowship, it's just just next impossible to do it. And God has wired us this way. Even the Apostle Paul probably had as many gifts as any person that's ever walked on the, on the planet. Spiritual gifts, very capable, bold, courageous. And yet, until his death, he was associated with a network of preachers, teachers, evangelists, people in the churches. When you read the book of Romans, when you come to the last chapter, which is chapter 16, he mentions by name 27 different people. There was affection for these people. It wasn't a job only. It was a relationship. He loved these people. So as Romans closes, he says, greet so-and-so, and and he gives a personal comment. and says, and and say hello to this person and this person, and 27 different names. D.L. Moody, I mentioned a few weeks ago when I mentioned Ira Sankey, I have sermon amnesia. Literally, I cannot tell you right now what I preached on two weeks ago. I don't know. I can't even tell you the passage. It's like it just, it's like a college student taking a test. You know, they take the test and, sorry, no insult uh, to the college students, but it's just like it's, it just vanishes. I have, I have leakage. I have mental leakage among other issues. But I mentioned Ira Sankey, I-R-A-S-A-N-K-E-Y, and I mentioned in a context that in the 18, latter 1800s that he was this great singer. He was well-known, and of course then, to hear someone sing, it had to be in person. And I told about how he met this man that had almost killed him during the Civil War and how he sang on, on this boat. Well, Ira Sankey was the musician that would accompany Dwight L. Moody when Moody would preach at these large meetings here in America, and Ira Sankey would sing. And it also was a reason for people to come to the meeting to hear him sing. And he was a strong Christian, and he and Moody were partners in ministry. Well, for years, Dwight L. Moody had received invitations to come to England and to preach in college settings. And the most requests had come for him to preach at Cambridge. He was very hesitant, very hesitant to do that because he had no formal education. And he was very uncouth in his pronunciation and in the way he expressed himself. And he was very conscious of that. He was a great evangelist, but he, he, didn't, he was not a man of higher learning. Well, he finally accepted the invitation to come. So Ira Sankey went with him, and they go to Cambridge. And he was to preach for five consecutive nights, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, at Cambridge. And they went to the first meeting... And the students showed up in their academic robes and they began to whistle and catcall during his preaching and they had canes that they began to beat on the floor and some of them got their chairs and stacked them up like a big pyramid in the middle of the auditorium. It was awful. As Moody said, it was chaos. And when he and Ira Sankey, Mr. Sankey, went back to their rooms that night, they were like, the worst thing is, we've got four more nights to go. This is terrible. 
Tuesday was worse than Monday. Wednesday was worse than Tuesday. Chaos. Total disrespect. But on Thursday night, the Holy Spirit fell. And Thursday night and Friday night, hundreds, some think as many as 600 young men were converted at Cambridge. And out of that group came seven, if you go to Google the Cambridge, not now, the Cambridge seven, you'll see these six students plus one more who came out of those meetings who then went to China as missionaries, then came back and recruited others to serve with the need of foreign missions. These were all stellar young men. C.T. Studd was a, a famous athlete. He was one of them. And they began to recruit, and the figures in looking back to that movement, which, by the way, became the YMCA, the YMCA was an aggressive evangelistic organization when it began. We can't even believe that today because there's no semblance of that by and large. But out of those meetings, conservative estimates are that some 20,000 men and women gave themselves to foreign missions. 20,000. You know where it began? With chaos in a college auditorium for three straight nights, and then the Holy Spirit working. Here's my question, strictly from the human standpoint. From the human standpoint, what if Dwight L. Moody had gone there by himself? Or what if Ira Sankey had gone there by himself and did not have that co-worker with him? I tend to think, if I was Dwight L. Moody, I would have gotten on a ship and come back to America a little bit early. If I was Ira Sankey, I would say, they obviously don't want to hear me. Let's call this off. We fulfilled our commitment, but they don't want to hear it. That partnership, though, and they stayed all five days. That's what Paul had. That's what you need. That's what I need. We need encouragement from others. We need to encourage others. Think now of someone who can I encourage to stay in the race. What kind of encouragement do I need? You, you can't do it alone. If the Apostle Paul couldn't do it, you and I can't do it. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you carry your gospel is, is true and real, even in hard places. Some of us live in hard places, maybe our own families, maybe our extended families, maybe the job or the office where we are. Uh, maybe it's... Uh, maybe it's friends from the past. We pray that you will help us to be hopeful and optimistic because you are at work to change hearts. We pray also that we'd be aggressive and expectant uh, with being your ambassadors because you are at work. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.